Um, number one, you're either built for this or you aren't. You either have it in the belly or you don't. Nobody will push you harder. Nobody will make you kind of deal with and overcome adversity harder than, than you. Um, don't look to anybody else. Don't look to clients. Don't look to partners. Don't look to employees. Don't look to vendors. It's either, you know, you're committing to this and you either have the fire in your belly or you don't. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Scott Markman. And uh, Scott uh, was originally from uh, Baltimore, grew, uh, got a bachelor's degree in college in design, and uh, moved back to Baltimore, uh, worked for a couple of firms in Baltimore, um, got, a, or got a, a bit crazy, quit his job and went and traveled for a year and then uh, came back and wanted to live somewhere else. And so decided to go and work at uh, Chicago for a bit for a firm. Um, didn't end up liking the their work environment or the, the management there quite as much. And so uh, decided to go do something else. Um, his parents loaned him some money to start his own graphic design firm. Um, pivoted the agency and uh, brought on a college roommate and some other people you know pivoted again and to more of a branding agency and worked a, a lot with uh, b2b or business and business and nonprofit organizations and others um, did a lot of work for private equity firms as well and that's a bit where they found their sweet spot and uh, we continued to uh, quickly grow in size and they're doing great there ever since so with that much as a introduction to the podcast welcome on to the podcast scott thank you so much for having me today i really appreciate it Absolutely. So I just took a, a much longer journey and condensed into 30 seconds. So let's unpack it a bit and tell us a little bit about how your journey got started in Baltimore and then uh, going into uh, design in college. Sure. So um, first of all, my parents owned a small business. Uh, they founded it the year I was uh, born. So I kind of grew up with entrepreneurial whatever as a part of all I knew. Um, my sister and I always referred to the, my parents' business as the third child. Um, and so I worked there as a kid and summers. And so understood some of the foundational aspects of entrepreneurship, um, how to um, set standards, how to do great work, how to treat people well, how to deal with customers and how to uh, research and solve problems and all of that stuff and, and sort of build a reputation. And so I kind of grew up with that. And so I think at some point I, knew maybe as a teenager that I would always own my own business and uh, where, when, and how, and why I didn't know. Um, so that's uh, maybe background fact one. Fact two was that I always loved logos. Go to the airport, uh, you know, go to a sporting event and to see the logos on, on uh, swag and, uh, you know, on the signage all around was just kind of cool. And it was kind of like, I would love to create those things. So I think that the idea of design as something I had a passion for uh, was there from early on. I mean, was I good at it? Uh, what did it take to become successful? I had no idea. And so in high school, it was sort of, uh, well, what do you want to do? You want to be a lawyer, a doctor, accountant, or, you know, take over Des business or, you know, what uh, just other kind of career paths. And the answer for me was sort of none of the above. Um, my parents wanted me to go into their business for a long time and uh, probably 
spent 10 years uh, persuading me to do that. And, it, you know, in, in all earnestness, and I, you know, I thought about it off and on for a period of time. And actually, well, when I was going to hang my shingle was monogram group um, before, you know, they loaned me the money to do this. They wait, made one last run at me because they were selling their business now, and we're going to retire. But now, before we dive into that too much, just because I jumped a bit over some of your journey, definitely don't want to exclude sure. that. So you, but in the interim between uh, getting the loan with your parents and them, um, you know, trying to take one last run and persuade you to work with them, you went off to college and got your degree in design and moved back to Baltimore and worked for a firm for a period of time. Is that right? Or a couple for uh, a couple firms. Yeah, the, I spent most of my time working for one firm, one of the top firms in Baltimore, and spent a year prior to that working at the biggest firm uh, in town. This is from 1982 until 87. Um, and so cut my teeth were working under and with some incredibly talented people. Um, and even today, um, one of the uh, partners of that second firm is still a, is, is a good friend and an ongoing colleague in Monogram Group. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I learned at the feet of, of uh, incredibly talented business people and designers and communicators and all of that stuff. And so cut my teeth, you know, apprenticed, frankly, um, at some of the top tier firms in town. Um, and so when I left, you know, I had five years in my belt um, doing things uh, the right way and having a sense of how to um, do great work. Now, when you left, and it was something we chatted just for a bit uh, before the podcast, is you decided that you were going to do something a bit more crazy, you quit your job and took it and traveled for a year. So kind of was that, hey, I've been working really hard, I'm burnt out, I want to relax, or hey, I'm trying to find myself, or hey, this just sounds fun, I had the opportunity, it came up, or kind of what made you transition from working for some of those larger firms to saying, I want to take a year off and travel? Um, all the above, Devin. <laughs> you know, I was a little burned out. Um, I've always had a travel bug. I started traveling when I was 13. Um, and a piece of it was I was single. I really had no obligations. Um, this was the time of life to do it. And I sort of felt like if I didn't do it now, I would probably never do it. And that's probably correct. And for most people that we know, um, that dream of this and sort of wistfully talk about this kind of stuff and never do it. Unfortunately, life, life, you know, comes at you hard and you just don't have a chance to do it. There's a huge difference between traveling and vacation. And we all take vacations and do go to exotic places and great hotels and all of that good stuff. But traveling is wildly different. Traveling is sort of a job. And I don't mean to say it's work. I, I'm just saying it's, it's a full-time endeavor and you have to dedicate yourself to it. And the ebb and flow and the, the blocks of time and the mindset and what you experience when you go overseas and be on your own and just kind of do this stuff, it was life-changing. And so um, I was gone for one whole year and absolutely it changed me. Um, it made me in general more adventurous, more open more holistic in my thinking about kind of, uh, you know, my place in the world and uh, America's standing in the world and and all of those things that were influential in starting an agency and where I've come over the last 30 years or so. Now, you know, and I think that there uh, that is a good distinction. Vacation you take for a short period of time, usually it's with your family or with others. And, you know, after that short period of time, you go back to work, whereas travel, it sounds like it makes sense as more of that full-time endeavor and a bit of, of a different uh, focus. So now you say, okay, went and traveled for a year, all the above reasons. And now I'm coming back and say, you know, I guess one question that, and then we'll dive into when you got back after travel is, 
what made you decide to bring the travel to an end? In other words, was it, hey, I'm going, I have a set and defined period of time, I'm going to do it for a year, or is it, hey, it kind of got to the end of the year and said, okay, that's out of my system, now I want to get back to working, or I need more money, or what was the genesis for kind of concluding that travel and getting back into the work field? So this was 1987, 88, back in the day when there was things called paper tickets. And I had an airplane ticket that had 17 parts and it had an expiration date of one year. And I came back on the last possible day. So I literally mapped from Baltimore to Perth, Australia and back in 17 segments. There were other pieces to it that ended up evolving, but I did have a time limit. Um, in addition, I was running out of money. And I think candidly, the third piece was I was ready to move on with life. I mean, I had squeezed every ounce out of what travel and being on my own and spending most of my time halfway around the world in Australia and New Zealand could offer me. But at some point, it just I wanted to not live out of a suitcase and not constantly be under the a little bit the pressure of kind of meeting new people and sort of getting, you know, sort of finding your way every couple of weeks. It's it, it's brilliant and awesome, but it also takes work. And I, you know, like anything, you do too much of anything. You can listen to your favorite song a hundred times, and at some point you burn out. It was a little bit like that. I just I needed to to move on to the next stage of life. I definitely get that, and you know, any even too much of a good thing, as the saying goes, is still too much of a good thing. Or in other words, you you know, you have it for a period of time, and then you're saying, okay, ready for the next phase. So. Now, as you're coming back into taking that, you know, your travel, you're coming back into saying, okay, I'd like to pick up, get employment, get a job. And, you know, I think you were saying you wanted to go somewhere else in or, or outside of Baltimore. And so you went to Chicago, but how did that transition go? I mean, that's, that sounds in one, one sense ideal of, Hey, I've got a year off. I'm relaxed. You know, I'm, I've taken a break and I'm ready to reinvigorate a type of a thing, but now you got to figure out what are you going to do or what's your next step? So kind of how did you make that transition to figure out what you're going to do next? Sure. So um, I thought about, do I want to stay in Baltimore, get another job? The answer quickly was no. Um, then it became, well, where do you go? What are you looking for? And so I wanted to go to a bigger market. And I also decided I wanted to be in a place where I knew some people because I had spent a year of my life not knowing anybody. And so um, I went to college in St. Louis or Washington, U in St. Louis. And so a lot of my best buddies uh, from college uh, had moved to, to Chicago and started their career. So I already had a pretty tight circle of about a dozen people that uh, from day one, I could sort of just, you know, kind of hang out with and establish, you know, relations and figure things out. So I interviewed a bunch of cities, I looked at Boston, I looked at Toronto, I looked at Chicago, I looked at LA, I looked at Cincinnati, and then got uh, an offer in Cincinnati, an offer in Chicago. And so Cincinnati, I knew no one, and it's a fine place, but it's just not where I wanted to be. And so it became, the answer was to come to Chicago and, uh, and give it a go. So I packed up the car, and <laughs> here it is 33 years later. No, I think that, hey, sometimes it's, uh, it's those decisions that uh, you're saying, oh, they're both nice places. And it's interesting always what uh, tips us, the tips the scales a bit is to decide what you wanted to do. So now you move, you say, okay, Chicago's a place get a job there. And I think it was a relatively short initial job in the sense that you didn't like the management or the boss or the work environment or something of that nature. Is that right? That's correct. Um, I moved here to work for a very prestigious, successful design firm. Um, I was offered, you know, nice, nice salary and work on great work and all of it. And so, you know, I, I took job and moved within four or five days and started, um, 
after I moved to Chicago was actually right around now, right around Thanksgiving of 1988. Um, and I quickly learned that there were some things about the, the, the owner and the culture and the, the, the reason I was hired and whatnot that um, were not great. So I lasted close to a year, um, but it was, it was, it was not, not a great fit for me. And so, you know, we agreed to part ways um, in September of 89. And then, you know, again, crossroads of life. What, what's the next move? Um, move back to Baltimore, get a job. Try and interview for a job in Chicago. Buy my parents' business. Or the last option, hang my shingle. And so, again, I had about a month to think about it. And uh, I talked to my parents and I said, look, I just, I don't want to buy the business, but I'd like to, you know, hang my shingle. And so, you know, my parents said, uh, okay, here you go. They loaned me 20,000 bucks, of which 5,000 went to one thing, a Mac. Uh, again, Macs back then, the screens were this big and it had the entire hard drive was 40 megabytes. You know, one photo today is 60 megabytes. And um, um, I got a shared office on Michigan Avenue. And I took about a month to figure out the name of the firm and what I, my logo was going to be. I filed papers and Jan, Jan 1, 1990, I hung my shingle. And my parents, um, God bless them, they've, they've, they've long since passed away. Um, they gave me the greatest gift they could ever give me, which was the freedom to fail. They basically said to me, if it blow the money, you blow the money. We'll all get over it and let's, you know, give it a go. But, and I, and to this day, as you hear, appreciate it. But I had about 90 days to make it. And as you might imagine, nobody pushes you harder than you, me. And I, the pressure to succeed was immense. And I worked my brains out. Um, and I scheduled 40 presentations in six weeks. And again, I, I was only lived here for a year. I didn't really have a network. I didn't really know that many people, but I just, you know, who do you know? Who do you know? You know, and just network my brains out. Got 40 presentations. And from that, got a couple of clients. And it saved the day. A couple of, couple of substantial projects. So just to last the first year, it was just survival was job one. No, I think that that makes sense. And, you know, sometimes it's that pressure and, and some people react well and some people don't in the sense that you it's time to either sink or swim, you're going out on your own. And some people are saying, oh, this is too stressful. I'm just going to work somewhere, you know, go work for someone else. And you find out that that's not what you want to do. Another time you're saying, hey, this is what I love and what I want to do. And I'm going to figure out a way to make it work. And it's going to, um, you know, make a go of it. Now, I think that as we talked a little bit, um, you know, before the podcast again, but, you know, so you have the loan, you get, you know, the business up and running, you kind of figure out what you're going to do. But you did also pivot a, a couple of times along the way, if I remember right. And since, you know, you pivoted yes. to an agency, yeah. you brought on some college roommates, and you also pivoted to do branding for different types of businesses and be a bit more niche down. So tell us a little bit about how did, you know, along that journey, how did you kind of, what, what prompted the pivots? What was, were they good pivots, bad pivots? And kind of how did you make your way to kind of where you're at today, as far as kind of figuring out where you're going to focus or niche down on and, and also, you know, how you're going to, to make it there? So the first several years, I'm a graphic designer. I knew graphic design. I could do graphic design things. Now, you have to understand that this was before, you know, the internet. It was kind of before email. Uh, it was just email was just getting started. And, you know, uh, all the things that we all take for granted today about how business is done, how things are done and cell phones and all of that did not exist. So I could sort of sell what I knew how to do, which was design projects. And so that's what I did for a number of years. 
Um, but about four years into it, um, we started to get some swings at advertising campaign work. And uh, we threw some contacts that was developing and we started to win a couple. Now, the way I was able to do that was my college buddies who ended up becoming partners. Um, one was a creative director at a big agency, my best friend from college. And where I took a left turn and went into graphic design, he took a right turn and went into big time advertising. So he had those skills. And he introduced me. So he was very uh, connected to the Chicago Advertising Committee, started to connect me to you know, writers and other people I needed to do to kind of piece together um, a broader set of uh, skills and deliverables. And so uh, opportunistically, I'm always, always looking for what, you know, what's the next wave of opportunity or trend or whatever that I can sort of uh, identify and be uh, qualified at. And um, it became going after ad advertising kind of stuff. And so we started to do that. And about seven years into it, I just sort of said, you know, I think the long-term opportunity here is to be in an agency and not to be a graphic design firm. And in the Chicago market, that's different. They're, they're all related. They're all marketing services, creative services, but agencies are agencies, design firms are design firms, package design firms are package design firms. And around this time, something came up called web firms, websites. And that was a, its own niche and you know public relations and all of it. And, and it's, it's very much a siloified, uh, you know, um, industry in in chicago it's enormous marketing services creative services is one of the cornerstone you know industries of, of the market um so i was kind of switching from one silo to another on the surface and so from about 1997 or eight until about 2006 we were in an ad agency because that was more opportunity uh to expand the arsenal of things we could sell to people and that we were qualified for so we actually picked up in 1999, um, even to date, our largest piece of business. Uh, it, was, it was a $3 million account to develop a comprehensive uh, public education campaign um, about local, about phone service options. It was uh, managed by the Illinois Commerce Commission um, as an outgrowth of, of a merger between SBC and Ameritech, which now is AT&T. Um, and we got the gig and I pieced together lots of different uh, folks and small firms and whatever. And we ran a $3 million um, engagement. And guess what? <laughs> it launched 9-10-2001. That would be the day before 9-11. A year's worth of work. When <clears throat> we had to put a pause on this thing. And we ended up sort of executing it. But it, it really catapulted us into a whole other stratosphere. It was a $3 million gig and incredibly complicated and, and well done. And, and we managed a lot of complexity and breadth and depth of uh, deliverables and integrate work and, and all of it. So it sort of just painted a different picture of the game we were playing and the health this agency was after 11 years. So we kind of pursued that for a while. My partner, Harold Woodridge, um, my college roommate, um, I've been partner in 2002, and then the third partner, Jackie Short, another college friend, um, who was a corporate market researcher and had both, by the way, had moonlit for the agency starting in about 1992. So they, they were on the scene, behind the scenes for a long time. Um, so when Jackie joins a partner in 2006, it became, okay, what is the kind of the, you know, the, what's it, the Venn diagram, the overlapping circles of 
corporate design, big agency creative director, and a corporate market researcher. What's what's in the middle? And the answer was brand. And so we pivoted again in 2006 to kind of focus our attention for the most part on brand engagements. And that's where we've been for the last 15 years. No, and I think that it's always interesting because I think a lot of times people have a kind of idealized in their mind, hey, you do a startup, you have it figured out from day one, you go down the path and there's nothing that needs to change because you've already got it all figured out and you're raving success because you watch the TV show, you read the book and you kind of get that sense that they always knew where they were headed. I think maybe to a degree that there's, you know, some direction and things that you're utilizing skills. But on the other hand, there's always those pivots and that just and figuring out exactly what you should be, what you want to be, where your skill sets lie, where your passions lie, and also where the opportunity lies. And it takes a bit of time or, you know, years and a lot of times to really figure that out. And sometimes it's stressful along the way and you have to figure out how to make ends meet and how to bring on clients and how to keep the bills paid and keep the you know revenue going but it's always interesting to hear that and it sounds like that was a bit of you guys in the sense that you started over a period of time you continue to pivot until you finally find that kind of that sweet spot and now as, as we talked a little bit before now as you've kind of niched down and you you find some of that you're doing more of the you know the private equity firms or you're doing investment firms and you're doing some of those other type of b2b work that that's really found your sweet spot and allowed you guys to to grow to where you're at today is that right well, let me, yes, but let me, let me back up a little bit. Sure. Um, in 1996, kind of randomly, uh, we picked up our first client in private equity. I had no idea what private equity was. I'm, I'm not a finance major. Um, my next door neighbor, one day, we were like watching the cars in the front of the house and I'm kind of like, hey, it's um, 10 guys are like leaving this big finance uh, company that I, I work in. I knew she worked at something called private equity, but I didn't really know much about it. And she said, they're going to be starting their own, you know, uh, company could be a client for you. So she gave me the contact information. I reached out, we won the assignment. And that was 25 years ago. They ended up becoming a Titan in private equity credit. So in private equity transactions, there's the equity side and the credit side. And they became it for middle market uh, credit. And then we built the brand from scratch. They were a client for 13 years. They were eventually bought out by G Capital and then all of Sigan House. And we didn't have them as a client for a number of years. And then we worked with them again in 2015 and 16. But it gave us instant credibility because the work that we did was very high profile in their business. And it was very edgy because they wanted to make some, some noise. And so quickly we were catapulted into this category. Oh, who did your work? Who did your work? Who did your work? So we've been in this category for 26 years. And today the amount of clients we've had is close to 65. It is an absolutely insane concentration in one category for any agency of any stripe. And, and typically in any category, you're prohibited from doing this because of competitive conflicts. You work for those guys, you can't work for these guys. Non private equity, it's quite the opposite. It's kind of like it's a badge of honor. Oh, who are your who are your clients? Who do you know? Ba, 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 ba. I'm I'm not a name dropper by nature, but I can name I can walk in any private equity firm in America and name drop in 30 seconds that you know it's like old boys club. And so we we are incredibly well known today in private equity and get a swing at almost everything. Now, there was a period of time, by the way, Devin, where we kind of walked away from this. About 2012, we were a little bit burned out on this. 
and sort of paused. We kept a couple of clients, some some folks we had good relationships with, but I just, the biz dev, I, I just turned it off. But in 2016, uh, we went through a, a really, really bad period. We just, revenue was hard to come by. We lost a ton of proposals in a row and we had to sort of find a way to, you know, bring revenue back in quickly. And the answer was, let's just double back down on private equity. So we've done that and we did some things that have enabled like a, a spike the last five years or so. And it's become a cornerstone of our um, agency and the revenue and the client base and all of it um, ever since. And, um, and, and really, really enjoy the work. Um, it's, it's really been a fantastic sort of reawakening or, you know, re, um, revisiting of all of this and, and really enjoy the work. Um, it's also opened a second block of opportunity, which are the companies that these guys own, uh, portfolio companies. And that's like our second biz dev bucket is, so PE firms is A, portfolio companies is B, and anybody else is, we call the rest of the world, is C. And the largest area of opportunity by 150 miles is portfolio companies because there's probably 35,000 of them in America, probably 33,000 even we can sell them. The, the, the sheer volume of opportunity is unending and it's a lot of work focused on going forward. No, and I think that that, uh, that definitely makes sense. And, um, and it seems like, you know, interesting on the portfolio companies, because then you get the work, both of the investment. A lot of times you have those companies that they are investing in themselves that also come along for the ride. So it kind of gives that the multiplying effect. So well, as we kind of now bring that brings us a bit up to, you know, your journey, where you've been and now where you're at today. Great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. So we'll go ahead and jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it? I, here's what I would tell you. Um, I always assumed from day one that in order to be successful owning an agency, you need a fancy, fancy, big offices. And so over time, the arc of, you know, all the offices we had was bigger, fancier. Culminating in nine years in Willis Tower, the largest building in Chicago and in North America, custom built out space, um, big, big space, we could accommodate up to 25 people. And eventually it became a financial albatross. And we moved out in 2017 to where we are now. And to some degrees out of necessity, because I need to get out from a kind of a, like a stranglehold lease and, and a financial burden. But my wife had said, hey, why don't you look up, you know, near where we live, which is a Rigby Field. Because um, there's a whole sort of industrial area that was renovated into office spaces and whatever. And it took me a long time to kind of decouple from the belief that that, that was requirement to be downtown, to have beautiful office space, you entertain your wine dine people and all of that good stuff. And I did it for 27 years um, and it was quite the opposite. So I, I look back and say, if I could do one thing differently, by far, it would have been to not sign at least at Willis Tower and to gone for, you know, warehouse space, kind of cheap, pocket all the money, be able to survive the ups and downs of, you know, kind of cash flow and biz dev until certain things are in place. And, and uh, it would have been a life-changing thing. No, and I think that, that that definitely makes sense. And I'm in agreement. You know, it's interesting because the legal industry is a lot the same way. Hey, I have to have the big high rise. I got to have the wood adorned offices and everything else. And then I look and say, 
One is you're putting a lot of money into office spaces that you could do and do it for business development or client development or talent management. And then two, most of the clients don't care, especially as you look at where we're at today, where people are doing it remotely and they are doing it to where I don't need to go in the office and all those things. A lot of times those, they do become the albatross around, you, around your neck to say, this isn't providing any real return. And yet we're spending a lot of money to be on that prime location that nobody cares about for a lot or for a lot of times and purposes. So I think that that definitely, you know, mistake that a lot of industries and a lot of people make. And yet, as you, as you take the leap, say, we don't need this. And it, it definitely has an impact. A lot of times has that positive impact. Second question I always ask is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Um, a couple things. Um, number one, you're either built for this, you aren't. You either have it in the belly or you don't. Nobody will push you harder. Nobody will make you kind of deal with and overcome adversity harder than, than you. Um, don't look to anybody else. Don't look to clients. Don't look to partners. Don't look to employees. Don't look to vendors. It's either, you know, you're committing to this and you either have the fire in your belly or you don't. That's number one. Number two, um, I am a huge believer in, you know, the, the ethos, uh, you know, championed by Simon Sinek. What is the why? Um, you either have a purpose, you're mission driven, whatever the heck it is, or you aren't. There has to be some underlying, why the hell am I doing this? What, what, what am I striving for? For us, I love, I'm intellectually curious. I love what I do. I love working with really talented people and love having shared high standards to do great work. You have to enjoy the journey as well as the outcome, regardless of what you're doing. And the third thing I would say is that your greatest friend is perseverance and resilience. Um, that's sort of been the only thing that kept me through some, you know, the tough times. And, and now that I look back on 30, you know, two years, I say, you know, darn it. Um, I survived and I'm, and I'm, we're killing it now. We're, we're, we're just killing it. We just came up with our best year ever. And next year is probably already booked to be much higher than this year. We're finally bearing fruit of the long-term potential of this thing. And it took a very long time. And there's something unbelievably gratifying about saying, I didn't give up. Um, I made a, I took some risks. I made some good choices. I made some bad choices, but here I am. I'm still standing. I have a great bunch of folks with me and, and before me and after me and all of that stuff. And it is so gratifying. It is unbelievably gratifying. Um, you know, I, I jokingly refer to entrepreneurship as the dark side. You know, welcome to the dark side. Uh, corporate refugees and or any, anybody else. And again, you, if you love it, there is nothing better in the world than running your own show. Um, no, I, and it's not because I, I, you know, I can take all the vacations I want. I take less vacations. Than 98% of the world. But the gratification and the uh, challenge of r running a thing and making something your life's work, I, I couldn't replace for anything. No, I think that there's definitely a, a ton of truth to that and definitely great, uh, great words of advice. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Sure. Um, I'm you know, happy to share my contact information. My email is smarkman at monogramgroup.com. It's on, on the footer of our website. 
or our number, which frankly is my cell number. I'll give it to you. It's 312-286-4219. And, you know, last year during COVID, we killed the office number. <laughs> you know, like mind blowing that we don't have an office number, but we don't. And again, it hasn't hurt anything. In fact, we're killing it. So, you know, I, I on my cell phone, I feel phone numbers and, you know, I, I, scam, 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 but there's a lead. I, I'm right there with you. And, you know, interesting that our office number links right to my cell phone. I want to make sure, you know, as the owner that I'm available to any of the, uh, of the people that are, are any of the clients or potential clients or anything else. And everybody always, well, you need to do a Google phone or you need to do an office. I'm like, you know, I'd, I'd rather than just be able to direct or connect with me directly. So I, I'm right there with you. Well, thank you. Let again. Me, let me, well, oh, go ahead. I want to add one more thing to sure. answer your question to two ago. Um, one of the beautiful things about running your own show is people buy you and they buy your passion. They love your energy. They buy your energy. They love your effort. They love they buy your enthusiasm and they love, then they buy your uniqueness. And, and again, you either embrace that or you don't, but you have to put forth the effort. You have to let people know this is who I am. This is important to me. It's valuable to you. It's central to our culture. And, you know, one of my old bosses on day one said, basically the one thing you can always control is service. Just effing try harder. That's it. Just try harder and people will notice and people will value it. And I've never forgotten that. I, I think that's the a great uh, final takeaway and definitely great piece of advice and appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Now for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to tell, we'd love to have you on the podcast. So just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. Also make sure to leave us, leave us a review, click subscribe, share with your friends, because we want to make sure everyone finds out about all these awesome journeys. And last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Thank you again, Scott, for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Devin, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this. Absolutely.